VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hello, welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wizencroft. On the way, uh, what's it like being a football journalist through a manic transfer window? Uh, after Manchester United's awfulness dominated our last discussion, we will make some time, we promise, to praise Spurs. Uh, pressure grows to let fans into football grounds once again, but are we being sensible? And speaking of being sensible, Mr. Sensible himself, Gareth Southgate, uh, needs to get a message to his players in more ways than one. There's lots for us to get through. Uh, joining me this week, uh, Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd to help me through it. All right, guys. Hello, Hugh. Hi, Hugh. Hi. They're all absolutely delighted to be with me. I can, I can assure you their faces are beaming, even though their voices don't sound elated. Um, I'm going to come back to them in a few moments time, because as I, as I mentioned, I did want to start with transfers. It's something that I've always really been uh, interested in. Lots of intrigue around how journalists do their job during this time. It's a pretty unique role within journalism. So to help me gain some insight in that regard, I spoke to the Times chief sports correspondent, Matt Lawton, a little bit earlier on. Have a listen. Matt, I'm, I was really interested in finding out what the pressures are on a football journalist during the transfer window and I guess what skills then come with it to get stories found out and, and out to the public. I have to go back to a sort of previous life, Hugh, when I was a, I spent the early years of my career as a, as a football reporter around the different regions. I, I've, I've been the Yorkshire football reporter. I've been the Merseyside football reporter. I've been the Manchester football reporter. I've been the Northern football reporter. And the pressure, I guess, for the guys who work in the regions, who have the responsibility of being Manchester United and Manchester City correspondent, is that they they don't want to get beaten on a big story. They don't want to to suddenly be aware that a rival has broken a big transfer signing. Um, so I guess that's the pressure. Um, luckily, in my position now, I've kind of, I, you know, that's not really my responsibility. But um, but as I say, I spent a lot of my formative years as a, as a sports journalist having to worry about that kind of stuff. And it hasn't really changed. It, it, it's still, you know, as I say, if you are the the Midlands guy and Aston Villa get a big signing or, you know, let's just say, for example, Jack Grealish signs for Tottenham um, and you've missed that as the Aston Villa guy, that, that, that's not a good day at the office. So there is a big pressure on you. Who who comes down on you in the event that you've missed a story? <laughs> Have you met the head of sport at the time? He's a very scary man. <laughs> um, no, it, it, I think, I think, it, I don't think, I don't think people come down on you. In the years that I was, uh, I was, I was a football correspondent. Um, um, I guess I always felt that, that that the absolute doomsday scenario was either missing the story that the England manager had been sacked or or, or, or resigned, or missing the story of who the new England manager was. I always felt in the eleven years I was a football correspondent that was the biggie that I could not afford to miss. Um, I think generally sports editors are pretty understanding on these sort of things. I think the pressure is more self-imposed. 
how do you cultivate stories? How do you get sources and how do you know right from wrong? I think you have to be very careful. And, and, and it's probably why in my career I've not done that many transfer stories because I think a lot of them are do tend to be wrong. And I think you have to be very wary of the agendas of the people that give you information. Sometimes it's very obvious when an agent rings and says, this is happening and you're thinking, oh, I think I'm being used here. So you have to be mindful of that. You know, personally, I would always want second sources. So if, for example, an agent was to tell me something and said that this is happening, I would check it with a club. Now, a club may not always confirm or deny, but I wouldn't be comfortable running that story without getting it second source just because there are so many agendas. Sometimes the club can be the person or can be, can be the people setting the agenda that they want to get things going. You know, it, it is a way of destabilizing somebody and destabilizing a club if you get it out there that, 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 uh, that, that there's an interest. Um, but, I, you know, I've always been wary of them and because I just think sometimes because the, the, the very nature of transfer stories, the fact they generate so much excitement among readers, among supporters, and often because they involve big names. You don't really want your name associated with too many that, that miss the dartboard, if you like. Mm-hmm. Do you think things have changed in the last few years? Because social media, smartphones means there are so many stories out there, false pieces of information, of course, we know synonymous with social media as well. Do you think that changes the way a reporter can work? I think if journalists and the younger journalists that are coming out, and I, I do sound like a bit of an old fart, but I suppose I am 50 now. Um, but if, <laughs> if, if younger journalists are, are, are relying on stuff they're reading on Twitter or the internet, then that's a bad road to go down, I'm afraid. Yes, the thing that's, the thing that's, made, the thing that's made phones and, and the internet change, Hugh, is, is simply the fact, the immediacy that is sometimes required uh, with breaking stories, you know, in the old days as a newspaper journalist, obviously you had one edition time. Really, and obviously the, the, the paper changes uh, in, in in the hours between sort of ten o'clock and midnight, and you might have two or three editions. But really, you're hitting one edition. Now, if you get a story, to be honest, if you, if you are concerned that, uh, that that it might get out somewhere else, you, you've got to try and break it as fast as you can. But I don't think. What has, I don't think what has changed is following what could be fake news on the internet and or, or on Twitter. It still it still comes down to relationships with the people involved because at the end of the day, there's only going to be three parties or four parties that really know if a transfer is happening. That's the two clubs, the agent and the player involved. So so you've still got to have those relationships. You know, yes, there might be more access to information on the internet and on Twitter, but but I'm afraid as a young journalist you've still got to actually go and actually build relationships with people, have people's phone numbers and be someone that you that can either ring somebody to get information or actually the person that has the information thinks, oh, I'll give that journalist a call. So that hasn't changed. I don't think that's changed at all. My job, I don't really think has changed. The only thing that's, that, 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 that's different now, and I, I actually quite like it, is, is the fact that you can break news at any time. And I like that because, I, because actually the internet gives you more reach it means more people read it and and and, and you and you you aren't sitting there sweating you know you get a story at 10 o'clock in the morning i think god i can't break this for another 12 hours 
well, that's changed. You can break it in 15 minutes. Listen, you've told us about all the many roles you've had as a football reporter <laughs> up and down the country. Do you, do, is there a transfer story in your history that stands out? The one that always makes me laugh, although it's, I say it always makes me laugh, I only discovered just how amusing it was uh, about a year ago. But years and years ago, I, and, I, and I was a football correspondent at the time, so transfer stories weren't really my, my, my sort of gig, if you like. But I got a call completely out of the blue from somebody at Manchester United in the comms department to tell me that the club had just bid £30 million for Dimitar Berbatov. And I was slightly surprised. And I said, do I just have interest? Why are you ringing me to tell me this? And he said, oh, the manager wants you to have the story. I thought, how curious. Because I, I, I must be honest with you, I didn't get on that well with Alex, I, I, Alex Ferguson. I'd had a few run-ins with him. I, I'd written a few stories that he, he didn't particularly like. Um, I'd written stories about his son's involvement in certain transfer deals. So, so I, I've got to say, I don't think I was even in his top fifty favourite journalists. <laughs> so, years later, probably last year, I was having a coffee with somebody that used to work at United in the comms department, and we're talking about you know the Fergie years. And I say, I've got to be honest, I was always surprised when I got a call one day uh, to tell me that United had bid £30 million of Dimitar Berbatov, which, of course, was absolutely bang on. I, you know, and we broke the story, and it was absolutely right, and he signed for most United. And he said, ah, there, there, there is method in the apparent madness. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, there were certain stories that Alex wanted to get out there, but he knew that David Gill, the then chief executive, would be furious if he leaked it. So he'd always pick a journalist he didn't like because that way <laughs> you would never suspect him of leaking it. I thought, my brilliant. God, that's brilliant. And it now makes sense. Well, what a brilliant transfer story from Matt Lawson there. So good to talk to him a little bit earlier on. A little bit of insight taking us behind the veil on transfer stories. Um, Tom Clark, does that sound familiar in terms of the office, people running around with phones trying to get stories towards the end of the transfer window? It definitely does. And I think one thing Matt didn't say there is that the the other side of things, obviously the reporters are all working very hard to try and get these stories. But as an editor, you're then the kind of final buffer, if you like, for all of these stories. And obviously with transfer stories... As with any journalism, it's all in the way it's presented and how it's, you know, what the headline is. And you can, you can little nuances here and there, you can change whether you're saying something is definitely going to happen or whether it might happen. It's set to happen. That's a great journalistic get-out clause with transfer stories, just in case it falls down. So as an editor, you're always kind of pushing the reporters, how sure are we? Um, and there's been various times in my career um, when I've got it right and I've got it wrong. One of them was when Mario Balotelli returned to the Premier League, to Liverpool, and I was in the role as a night editor on the newspapers, which you're basically responsible for any late changes that happen. And obviously with transfer stories, that that is when they can kind of come to light quite late in the day. You know, the big the big bosses have gone home. It's, it's on you to make the call, uh, sometimes quite in quite a short space of time, particularly with newspaper deadlines and things. And we got this story that Balotelli was in line for a return to Liverpool, which is obviously, he was this hilarious kind of figure that had been at Manchester City. He had a year at Milan. We were like, 
and it, it comes down to there's a bit of gut instinct as well there was a lot of people in the office no surely not no way not a chance and you're trying to check it out you're trying to second source it as Matt's saying uh, and in the end uh, we decided I decided to kind of put it on the inside pages not put it on the back page uh, and the next day when he was strolling into Liverpool and presenting his shirt I got a right royal bollocking for that one um, but just in my defence so that listeners don't think I'm completely incompetent at my job the other one which was even more dramatic and a turn of uh, change in narrative completely was the David De Gea story with the time he came closest to leaving Manchester United which I believe was a deadline day story and the famous Edward Wood pulled the plug on the fax machine etc etc but we went into the first edition which went to press at 10pm with a back page De Gea off fly you know set to complete move to Madrid because one of the difficulties you have with the deadline day is that deals are still happening all the way through into the night you've not had confirmation and newspaper pages often have to be sent at 10 p.m., 11 p.m., midnight. So you're trying to get absolutely everything finalised and certain. Anyway, we sent this first edition back page, David De Gea off, done, going to Real Madrid. And about 20 minutes after it had gone, the newspaper that I was working for had another edition fought about 40 minutes later, which was the second edition, so chance to correct any errors, add any new stories. Uh, and one of our journalists had quite a good contact within the De Gea camp itself and just rang them to say, oh, congratulations, he'd been working with them. And they said, it's not happened. It's not gone through. And you then like, oh, crap, we've got a back page that's going to hit the newsstands tomorrow saying he's gone to Real Madrid and now we're being told it's not happened. So he came on, spoke to me and said, it's, you know, we've got to change this. And it's then five, ten minutes of how sure are you you know how you know are we sure on this a couple of minutes trying to get uh more important people than myself involved so that if i'm wrong i can uh, alleviate some of the blame but in the end you just had to make the decision based on the information the journalist was the reporter was telling me which i believed he had a good source which was close to the player itself which is often about as good as you can get in these in these stories and we decided to flip the entire back page to from a picture of a happy looking de Gea to a sad one De Gea stays, etc., etc., and the rest is history. We woke up the next morning and I got a pat on the back. So it, it's 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 tough from the editing side. It, it always works both ways. I mean, I, I, those moments that someone runs into a newsroom screaming "Stop the press!" You know, that's that's apart apart from the football terminology on stopping the press. That's what I'm hoping happened, Tom. You you ran in waving a, pe- a sheet of paper or a bit of news <laughs> or a phone, saying "Stop the press right now, Alison." You've got your well, hand Tom, in the air. Tom, Tom, Tom always wears a visor for these podcasts, so he, uh, he likes to pretend to be the old-fashioned 1940s newsroom guy. I was in those days because the newspaper I was working for at the time was very much a print and old-fashioned uh, uh, organisation in that regard. The whole transfer window, it's like it feeds on itself. So it's, 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 it's completely separate sort of sports news, isn't it, Tom? Because... You could have a story saying a player is interested in a club or a club is interested in this type of player. And even if that isn't strictly true, sort of 48 hours or two weeks later, because the fans have said, oh, we like the sound of that. And people, certain people behind the scenes are, are pushing things. You, 
the newspapers are sort of creating stories. They might not exist at the start, but they, they come true by the end because of the reaction to them. It's a game that's being played often. It's a game of chess between all those parties that Matt Lawton listed, but the media are part of making something that is just speculation into reality. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, as an editor, you've got to try and push reporters on sometimes is not only how true is it, but as Alison said, what is the angle for this particular story? Because you do have a lot of times where perhaps the real germ, and this is not just Lionel Messi, this is all the way through, is about getting a player a new contract. And perhaps some agents try to do that by feeding a line to a reporter that, oh, these, all these clubs are in for him. Yeah, all these big clubs are in for him. You know, pick a pick a homegrown talent in the championship or low down the Premier League. Oh yeah, all these big clubs are in for him. Load of new stories get out and then, you know, he gets a gets a nice bumper new deal with where he is and maybe none of these clubs were ever actually properly interested in him in the first place. So that that's the challenge as well because the more of those stories you do or engage with, the more readers and subscribers might be like a lot of my friends where they accuse me of lying and talking nonsense and <laughs> peddling vicious rumours which is absolutely not the case at the times obviously oh, I can't wait for you all to read my story in tomorrow's times about Kylian Mbappe and Lionel Messi moving to Manchester United <laughs> next summer you know why not ramp it up from here on out um, just on the end of the transfer window what 1.24 billion pounds spent by Premier League clubs this summer um, we, I'm sure everyone knows we've got our views on that but who do you think were the big winners uh, at the end of the transfer window Tom I mean, I, I, I can't remember many deals being done on deadline day in the last few years where I've thought, oh yeah, well done, that's a great bit of business. I think in modern football, the best transfer windows, the clubs are the ones that do their business early and fairly methodically. I mentioned them on the last podcast. I think Aston Villa had a very good window. I actually think West Ham, for all we've criticised them and said they've not spent money, the two Czech players they brought in, Suchek, um, on loan last season they've signed him on a permanent deal and I think their new right back I was quite impressed with him Kufal I think his name is um, it, they look quite David Moyes-esque signings quite sensible uh, additions for the squad so I, th- those are the kind of clubs I would say did well and I, you know we can uh, try and shoehorn a little dig in now because Alisson's here but Liverpool Maybe they needed to sign more people given their performance in their last match against Aston Villa. Yeah, no, absolutely. They needed to sign 18 new players and sack the manager, obviously, on the back of one result. Very sensible comment, Tom. Now, come on. I was just throwing it out there. It wasn't a great result, was it, 7-2? I was was just replying, Tom. (laughs) I I think that's the sound of an upset Liverpool fan. I think it might be. But they but all jokes aside, they had a very good window as well, didn't they? I mean, best team in the league, adding Thiago um, and people like Diego Jota. It's not going to be a bad thing. But, uh, you know, I, I can't think of a deadline day deal that I was impressed with particularly, no. Thomas Partey, Arsenal? I was going to say, what, what also, uh, although it's not what fans yearn for, what kind of constitutes a good window nowadays is the players you can sell too. You know, we, talk, we spoke about Man United the other week, you can't sell anyone. Liverpool, on the other hand, sold Dejan Lovren for £10 million or so, Rian Brewster, a young guy, for 23 although that was a hard decision. You know, they raise a lot of money to kind of, to make their net spend a lot smaller, and that's a that's the sign of a, a club that's functioning well. So, although that's not the kind of sexiness you see on the transfer deadline day, that actually is, is half the job. That's a good, very good point as well. When you think about Chelsea, everyone's excited about the people they've brought in, but they've now got a number two goalkeeper who's 
cost them 75 million pounds in Kepa, who you know is going to be sat on the bench because they brought in uh, Mendy, who seemingly is going to be their new number one. So poor old Frank, he's in trouble already. But they also <laughs> raised, a, you know, Selen Hazard and Morata the year before. He's the largest chunk of that too. So Leicester's another one. Alison's written about how Leicester's transfer policy is, you know among the best in the league because they constantly raise, you know, sell Ben Chilwell and they sign Castagna and he's been magnificent. Listen, I can't wait for people racing out to newsstands to read stories about who's been sold instead of who's been bought. I mean, the, the whole transfer window is getting flipped on its head. Uh, listen, I, I don't want to talk about Manchester United too much because we mentioned them last uh, week. However, um, I am personally very disappointed with that, the end of that transfer window. Because um, I, th- I feel like their squad's plateaued, their team pla- has plateaued, everyone else around them has improved. If you look at Everton, if you look at Chelsea, look at Spurs, uh, Arsenal did good business, I think. And, you know, they, they will stay where they are, given that they've brought in five new players. That's For me, that is not great. But um, but that's all I want to say about that. You know, the pain is clearly still very, there. Very restrained, Hugh. Very impressive. Alison and I are both wounded at the moment. There's no sense that's going to come from me on on this, so I'll, I'll move on. But, but sort of sort of intertwined with the fact that 1.24 billion pounds was spent in the Premier League, there are things I, I think related to that. In that the let fans in petition to allow football fans to attend football matches at all levels is growing weight. It is over, well, it's about 183,000 signatures on it. It only needed to pass 100,000 to be considered for debate in Parliament. And at the same time, we're seeing more footballers and professional athletes across the board test positive for coronavirus, which for me is a very, it's it's a glaring juxtaposition. We want to get back into ground. Clubs are spending plenty of money. On the other side of things, infection rates are going up and athletes are being directly affected in it in the middle of all of it I, I really wanted to ask you Gregor I'll start with you if is this the right moment for us to be going to parliament saying football fans need to be back inside ground you know on the one hand what you say is absolutely true so the answer is no because you know where the coronavirus rate is rising in a lot of places in the country and uh, this doesn't feel like a safe safe moment for that to happen but at the same time you have Boris Johnson standing in a cinema saying, you know, for a kind of foot opportunity saying, come and come and come to the cinema. And you can actually watch Premier League games in the cinema that would be happening like half a mile away live in a stadium outside. So, you know, there are so many kind of counter arguments and, you know, people raising the fact that in December, the, the Albert Hall is going to be 57% full. The thing is, we don't, you know, that's been announced now. We don't know whether that's actually going to happen or not. I think we're in such a difficult position, and that everything is balancing the the kind of economic necessities with the the risks to health, and that's the thing that football is caught up in. It's just that you look around so so many so many other aspects of society and dis- different businesses, and seeing that people are allowed are being allowed to to return, and football is not. And the question about that is. Whether they feel, you know, there's this, there's always, there's always this kind of uneasy relationship between government and football, and you know we saw that when in the early days of coronavirus, where they were talking about players giving up a part of their wage, you know, um, 
and then getting getting the sport back on and kind of despite the safety concerns and you know man, the players just getting on with it because it's going to be it's going to provide a, a boost to the nation sort of thing so it's, there's always been this uneasy relationship and I think that the government just look at the Premier League and think that they can support the rest of football and that it's not as quite the same imperative financial imperative for, for fans to return for football and I don't think that's true uh, so you know, I, I think I think fans should be allowed to be let back in gradually, but I think it needs to be. You know, we need to be prepared, preparing for the bailout as well, because at any moment all of this could come, could just be drawn back, rolled back upon, because of, we're in a, such uncertain times. Thirdly, two uh, bosses talking about. Sorry, I say bosses, chief executives talking about the fact that. They've got about a six-week time limit. You know, if they don't have some fans back inside the ground, then we could very soon see some clubs go to the wall. What's interesting is today in the Times, Martin Ziegler uh, has been speaking to Richard Masters, the Premier League's chief executive, and he's asking for Premier League football just to be treated equally, probably referring to what you mentioned there with Boris Johnson, Gregor. Uh, He says it's good news that venues can run socially distanced events indoors. It gives them a lifeline. We're starting to see the return of the paying spectator at ticketed events, and we just believe that football should be allowed to do the same. We do understand why is needed but what we are asking for is consistency from government so that sport is treated as fairly as other activities Alison has he got a point yeah it's 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 about propaganda I do feel like I'm living in George Orwell's 1984 at the moment because the government have clearly decided you're not going to have cameras at cinemas watching people go in and out every five minutes are you and and their faces when they watch the latest release terrible release by christopher nolan they're going but you're going to have cameras at football grounds so the government are very happy to have football live football on the telly to distract them from uh the worry of coronavirus and just the general sense of mental health needs boosting that's fine we'll use football for that but we don't like the idea of people sitting down on telly and watching people having a normal time. We're trying to convey the message that we all have to be extra careful and it's sending out the wrong message. So football is being used because it's because of its popularity, in a sense. It's the, the government feel it, 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 it see lots of groups of lads on the terraces, smiling behind their masks. You can see they're having a good time. Actually, I don't think you do have to wear a mask if you're going to a stadium. That's the current proposal. But you'd be, they just don't want that image coming out. And it's completely illogical. What is the point of having a test event around test events around the Europe and the one we had at Brighton for that friendly against Chelsea, which went swimmingly? There was nothing wrong with it at all. It proved that you can do it. Uh, football, Premier League football clubs are brilliantly organised. They they are capable of working out entry points, making sure temperatures are taken making sure there is no um, gathering in kiosk areas that you separate people out. I can't think of another business that would have that ability, but rather than exploit it, the government are thinking short term about the message it sends out. And as as Gregor says, they also don't feel it's, it's a vote winner to have any sympathy for football as a business in the same way that saving your local green grocer or restaurant has that emotional impact on, on, on the voting public. Masters made a good point in that it's like a you know I think he called a quadruple whammy. I'm not sure how he got all those, but it was you know there's no bailout for football. 
despite you know other industries that are because you can see a Premier League football earning a vast sum of money, even though that's the kind of that's the asset. It's just it's it's viewed very differently to an airline where the plane's an asset. You know that's the kind of the, that's the relationship I think that the government is struggling to to balance up with. So they, there's no bailout and there's no they're not being allowed customers. Whereas when other industries are beginning to fail, they're starting to allow customers in. The only reason Boris Johnson was stood in a, a cinema was because Cineworld is saying we're shutting down. So it once once the financial imperative becomes like undisputable, they're basically saying, "Okay, open the doors," and that that moment has arrived in the in the EFL, but they want the Premier League because if they see the, the amount of money that's swelling around, or they they perceive to be swelling around, it's not they don't they're not like replete with cash, that they want the Premier League to to bail out the EFL, and I you know I've I've always said that there's no reason why the government shouldn't assist football because it's it's another it's a an industry that's just as vital and kind of culturally significant as the arts that who received a 1 billion 1.5 billion bailout yeah in panto in panto you get ooh he's behind you and it's pretend <laughs> and in football it's man on man on and it really matters <laughs> <laughs> Alison, you make a very valid point on that. Um, uh, Steve Paris has written as well in the Times today, the Crystal Palace chairman. He says he's happy to pay £5 for every single uh, fan that comes into Selhurst Park to be tested if need be. You know, he's clearly making a bid on the, on the behalf of the Premier League chief executives. But I wonder, comparing that down the scale when I'm talking about League Two and, and six weeks from now, well, six weeks from now in terms of infection rates as well could be a, a crossroad, a junction that, that means that it is impossible to save those clubs unless people like Steve Parrish are prepared to say, it's okay for you to take some of our TV money to support those teams. And football will have to make a decision on what is more important, the game or the individual clubs. Um, and it seems like the clubs are deciding it's them it's themselves i think there's two there's two different parts to this aren't there I, you know gregor and i are obviously very passionate for a, a bailout and some help from either the government or from the premier league clubs further down the pyramid but it, part of this debate comes back to one of the you know national issues with how we've dealt with this pandemic which is poor planning and failing to see the road ahead i feel a little bit like you know when we came out of lockdown I personally treated things very cautiously and didn't go on holiday and didn't get stuck into returning to normal life and football was kind of presented a, diff a similar like you know type path oh well take your time let's wait let's get back in October and I feel like we've both been mugged off because we've we've left it a little bit longer and now the infection rates have gone back up I've got a holiday booked in two weeks it's going to be when there's a half-term lockdown and football was told you can let fans back in in October only for the infection rates to rise up and go, uh, have the plug pulled there should have been more foresight I know it's a unique time and everything's you know completely up in the air and we can't we can't plan for this but we knew the reliance that lower league football clubs had on fans being in the stadiums, on the revenue that that's, you know that that provides, not just from paying for your ticket, but for paying for the burger and the bit and the beer at halftime. We knew that that was happening. We knew they would have suffered from March onwards. You know that we they we pulled the plug on the league. Yes, the Premier League and the Championship came back, but everyone else haven't played since they started up again without fans. So they, we already knew they'd have suffered. Why? Why weren't we 
grasping onto this. I'm all for the petition and I'm all for the action now, but it feels it feels like a with you know football's been let down because it's come to this and we're now playing a little bit catch up. There should have been this push and this proposal from the very start back in you know September when things started again. We we knew this we knew this was a we, we knew this was a problem and this is why it makes it even harder because we're now playing catch up. Interesting to see all the people that said uh, football and politics shouldn't mix when people were taking the knee now petitioning Parliament. Uh, but there you go. Um, go on, Tom. That is an excellent point, obviously, on um, the uh, Black Lives Matter and and that as an issue. But Alison's quite right as well about politicians. And, you know, you think about last weekend when if you looked in the news pages, the headlines were all around the increasing problems in the country. But thank thank God Man United won, Tottenham six, Aston Villa seven, Liverpool two, because bloody hell, it gives everyone else something to talk about. Like, Alison's absolutely right. Football is being used and it's such a vital part of society at the moment. I mean, I went and met some friends last night. All we talked about was coronavirus and the Premier League and football. That was, that was it. <laughs> That was genuinely it. And that's not because we're narrow-minded individuals who aren't very intellectual and aren't very interesting. It's because there's nothing else to talk about. So like, there needs to be some acknowledgement of that as we continue to go down this road of more players getting infected as well. I mean, that's another factor. The players, as we've, you know, Gregor and I have said it before, they are, they're going out there and doing their jobs and they're getting infected. I'm, you know, I'm sure they'll get top-level treatment. But you've got three Liverpool players who've been tested positive for this virus and we're all being told how serious and problematic it is and worries about long covid and things these are professional athletes who rely on their bodies for their living and they they're out there picking it up and we're all happy for them to crack on and for liverpool to keep playing because they're incredibly entertaining three of their three of their star players have got this have got this uh, virus so i it, it, I'm, you, I'm getting more and more wound up so you should probably cut me off before I start swearing <laughs> well no I mean Jordan Shakiri is now delighted that he's become one of Liverpool's star players to be perfectly honest with you uh, Look, he's I got should a great say... free kick against Lincoln alright don't, don't, be, don't, be don't be knocking him if it makes you feel better uh, listen I should say I haven't seen it but Christopher Nolan's latest film is absolutely brilliant and you should all go and watch it just to balance things uh, out <laughs> as well you're listening uh, to the game podcast to enjoy more of our award winning sports journalism just subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times as well today and you will get one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Right. It's the international break, so we might as well talk England. Uh, Gareth Southgate, their manager, has a multitude of problems to solve. Defensively, there's a lack of form. Joe Gomez and Harry Maguire totally out of it. Uh, The midfield is all changed. Will Jack Grealish suddenly become the key man for England next summer? Clearly, the laws around coronavirus need to be reiterated to his players. And the big dilemma... I think is in goal with Jordan Pickford dropping a couple of clangers recently and Nick Pope and Dean Henderson staring uh, directly at him. He'll have to keep one eye over his shoulder at the moment. We'll start with the goalkeepers and this dilemma over Jordan Pickford. It's unlikely he'll play against Wales. We know that already. But should he be keeping his, his position in goal? Gregor Robertson, I'm going to ask you about this, that the pressure that Jordan Pickford's under at the moment. I think uh, Pickford is kind of almost following the path of uh, Joe Hart in that he seems to be looking incre- increasingly kind of stressed uh, when he, especially when he turn, when he's when he's uh, playing for England and that I, I just always that that image of of Hart uh, in the World Cup in the tunnel um, I think it was before, ahead of the Iceland game just looking like you know a, a man possessed absolutely <laughs> he was just looked like a man who was a kind of manic fear in his eyes um, and Pickford's sort of performances, although he doesn't although he doesn't quite display that, his performances are sort of beginning to mirror that and you know, even when he makes a mistake he's, he's punching the floor and kicking the post and you know, it's not, he doesn't exude calm um, and that's the biggest that's the biggest issue. The thing both Pope and Henderson you would imagine are, are, are better, op- better options, obviously Henderson needs to secure first team football um, but Gareth Southgate also has the issue about he want want a goalkeeper who can play out and is capable with his feet, you know, can play out from the back. So neither of those two really um, fit that bill either. So England England are in a strange position in that they have you know several good goalkeepers, but none of them really fit the bill for what for what Southgate is looking for. I think. I feel for Jordan Pickford slightly in that Everton have started the season pretty well, but the conversation is around a new goalkeeper, which, by the way, Everton did go out and get. Now, whether that will improve him with a little bit of pressure, I- I'm not sh- I'm not sure. I'm not sure because I think the reliance on his feet um, is too much of an exaggeration for the position that he plays in. It, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're that good with your feet, if you're that bad with your hands, frankly <laughs> speaking. So... Um, I think they need someone who's going to be... Listen, he hasn't played that badly for England, but everyone says that he hasn't made a mistake for England. And you don't really get the opportunity to make that many mistakes for England. So when do you want it to be? Do you want it to be like everyone else? You know, Rob Green, Scott Carson, you know, pivotal games, David James, you know, making mistakes for England. You know, all goalkeepers who maybe came under too much pressure because of their single mistake. But ultimately, if Jordan Pickford does make a high-profile mistake for England we can all sit back and say it was coming because we'd actually seen that before. As the other goalkeepers, that was probably the first time they'd made a mistake in a long while in terms of a, a big level mistake. Jordan Pickford's made quite a few. It's been regular. And for me, Gareth Southgate, you know, you want to trust your players. You want to back your players. But how far does it go? Well, the problem is, I think, 
we may come on to this, but Gareth Southgate has a lot of problems, a huge amount of problems. So one thing you can do if you're an international manager is just know that you know who your goalkeeper is. If you know who your goalkeeper is, if he's there for every game, he's the sort of the, the sort of the, the permanent point of calm and he can it doesn't matter what changes you make anywhere else you've got this one individual who's different because goalkeepers are different and they operate differently they see the game differently and they can give um a team a sense of 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 reassurance and that you know of solidity and the problem is and, and that's what gareth southgate would like and i i i can agree with him on that if i was in his job i would want to do that but he's building it around the wrong bloke pickford does not emanate those qualities he he behaves quite immaturely at times i think um you know gregor indicated you know sometimes he's bashing the floor and so you don't want that from your point of solidity and calm you want someone who emanates authority so i think pickford comes over as a bit too young um a bit too emotional i mean that was joe hart's downfall internationally he was too emotional and he admitted it you don't want someone over emotional they can be slightly eccentric if you want but you want you want to feel that they're going to always be there you don't need them to be flash you just need them to be solid and reliable and have the, the maturity of character to bring along a young team and I, that is in that sense he's exactly the wrong goalkeeper he feels younger than the youngest outfield players so he and, and Southgate has stuck with him for so long it's like it's like he's you know oh my god the point of no return I, sh I sh he shouldn't have done it because I don't think Pickford matured into the role either and I also think Pickford has been slightly um, mollycoddled and spoiled by Everton who have bigged him up to be this amazing goalkeeper and, and overlooked his mistakes he's been allowed to get away with an awful lot so it's, it's come together as a perfect storm of it just being the wrong man for far too long for England I would say I think there's part of a problem with goalkeepers and I've been a long campaigner for Jordan Pickford not necessarily disagreeing with the things that have been said but purely from the point of view of I'm not 100% sure who his replacement is and I think sometimes in any team but particularly at international level when you have so little time spent together there's there's changes all over the team in defence in midfield often a change in system I agree that solidity and some kind of reliability um, with a goalkeeper is vital but also just the reassurances of, of who it's actually going to be at least, at least you know that I know Jordan Pickford has not been in the best of form but I mean I've watched Burnley at the start of this season and Nick Pope hasn't been in great form in, in terms of his shot stopping he looked a bit off off form and out of, out of touch against Newcastle um, his performance then wasn't great Dean Henderson had a great season last season for Sheffield United but is now Manchester United's number two goalkeeper playing only in the Carabao Cup so I, I think in more than any other position it's as much about the person in the role, their performance dropping, but it's also has to be about there being someone right behind who you know this guy is definitely better in every sense, not just performance, but in terms of experience, international experience, knowing the players, having played with the players in front of him. And I don't know whether England can say that at the moment. Probably of the two, Henderson and Pope, I'd pick Pope because he's played more games at a top level above Henderson. I think it's a hell of an ask for Dean Henderson having played what is it one season in the Premier League with Sheffield United um, you know he's played a lot of a lot of football lower down the pyramid but it's a hell of an ask to, for him to suddenly become England's number one while being David De Gea's backup 
But do you do you actually believe, Tom, that Pickford has grown into the role of being England's number one, offering that that calm presence? He, he, he's just, he, it seems to me he's like one of the kids. He's not got that authority. No, he's definitely not. But I think, I don't think he ever will. I think that's part of his character. You can see with the way he kind of G's himself up and gets ready. And you could you saw it in the World Cup with the way, that's that's his mentality to me. That's the way he plays. We did a kind of close analysis before the penalty shootout against Colombia of Pickford with the goalkeepers and you could see him like prowling around it was like he was a boxer before going out for a fight you know this is my moment that is clearly just his mentality how he g's himself up for a game and it obviously manifests into errors shouting slapping the pitch and things but I I don't I don't think he's ever going to exude that kind of calmness you know in the kind of David Seaman mould and that probably will ultimately count, count against him I think my, you know, it's almost a strange counter-argument, but I, I just don't see, I think it's a real issue because I agree Pickford's out of form and he's not ideal in lots of respects. But I think he's got a lot going for him in terms of he has come through some tough times. He's, he is now experienced at international level and he plays the kind of football that Southgate wants to. But there's no denying that it's a real problem issue. I don't, I don't know, Tom. I think it might be a masterstroke from Gareth Southgate in that... You know, if we reach the final of the Euros, Jordan Pickford, so great with his feet, might step up and a bit like Jose Luis Chilever, curl a free kick into the top corner with his left foot. That's why he's in the squad, mate. You've missed it. You missed it totally. Luckily, Alison Rudd. Alison Rudd hasn't missed this in the game daily. She knows that goalkeepers <laughs> getting forward is what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, I find myself missing. Actually, think about it. There's an awful lot of things that go with watching football that are missing at the moment. And so if anything sort of cute or makes me think of the past happens. So um, uh, Ramsdale, Sheffield United keeper, um, last weekend, I don't know if you noticed, but his his team were trailing 2-1 and he he ran upfield. Not for a, it wasn't for a corner, it was for throwing actually, which is quite radical, isn't it? But anyway, he ran up to try and get involved. And the, it's that image when the goalkeeper decides to run upfield and join in, it's, it's, it's just so romantic. And I really clung to it. And then there was this coincidence because I was thinking, oh, I got very, like a child, I got very excited about Ramsdale's run. And then through my letterbox um, came this book called, um, Extra Time, it's by Daniel Gray. It's a tiny, tiny little pocketbook thing. And it just lists all the little things about football that we love. And I thought, well, I wonder if it's got goalkeepers running upfield. And uh, it did, as, as one of the things that are beautiful about football, the goalkeeper running upfield. And then I quoted this in my piece because it sums it up completely. So bear with me. So he's talking about the goalkeeper running to join a corner. And he says, he's still wearing his gloves there is no reason why he would not be. And yet it makes him seem like the kind of man who wears his socks during sex, which is exactly what the guy, <laughs> exactly what they look like, isn't it? But um, I don't know. I don't know if you guys agree, but if ever I see the goalkeeper doing something, well, you know, different or wacky, it, 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 it makes my heart sing. It is one of those great joyous moments, isn't it? When you see, the just you know in back in the 90s as well those kind of crazy wacky kits I mean Peter Schmeichel was one for Manchester United who often fancied himself going forward and obviously famously did in the European Cup uh, although we didn't play a part in the goals I was researching before and Schmeichel did actually score for Manchester United in Europe he scored in the second leg of a game against Rotter Volgograd 
Um, United needed two goals and he came up and if you look I recommend you looking up the the clip on YouTube because it's a hell of a header he beats everyone in the air comes down off the crossbar it's a great finish but it, it, it as Alison said it is one of those little pure joys of the game because it does also as well you as a fan you're also excited for the potential of a breakaway counter-attack and an empty empty <laughs> net and go on shoot 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 oh he's put it out for a throw in oh no never mind a good friend of mine Barry Roach uh, former teammate. Actually, I wrote a piece about him in the Times when he retired uh, quite recently. Uh, I played with him at Forest. But he had a long career for Morecambe, perennial survivors in League Two. And in 2016, uh, his life was turned upside down. Well, kind of, you know, media descended after he scored a 93rd minute equaliser against Portsmouth. He was like six foot five, header. And the next day he had like Sky Sports in his living room interviewing him and they kind of <laughs> he was on five live. It was a you know, great story. It was kind of he says that was the best best moment of his of his long, you know, two decade career. I think the key, as Alex Alison points out, is that you have to keep the goalkeeper in their kit and in their gloves because as we all know <laughs> when you try and play them as an outfielder it doesn't quite work as Stuart Pearce found out when he decided to put David James in a Manchester City kit as a striker doesn't quite come off to the same effect go forward for a throw in or a corner lads but you know stick to the day job after that I think Listen, for all we know, Jordan Pickford might be starting up front for England. Um, there's a lot of decisions for Gareth Southgate to make, especially in the central midfield area. Jack Grealish has emerged. It was a player that he didn't, didn't seem to fancy two games ago and suddenly he seems integral to England's future. He's going to have to make a huge decision around who's in his midfield. There's Rice, Declan Rice, Calvin Phillips, Jordan Henderson, Phil Foden will probably come back. Mason Mounts in the current squad. The defence, as I mentioned before, he doesn't seem to know whether it's a back four, whether it's a back five, and then who are the best players within that. And you mentioned the relationship with the goalkeeper already in terms of the defence. We're not going to go into detail on that, but Harry Kane is still the man and st- continues to prove, Tom, that he will he will be integral for England. Without him firing, all hopes seem to be gone. Well, we didn't mention them after the, uh, the humiliation of Manchester United, but one of the brilliant things, again, about Tottenham this season is Harry Kane proving what a lot of Tottenham fans said in previous years about how his game has changed. And I'm fully hold my hands up that I, that I didn't first see it, but now I do. He is clearly a world-class footballer but he's so integral to how England can play Alison talked before about having a reliability in terms of position if Gareth Southgate is at all struggling surely he should just go back to the idea that this guy is my best player his all-round game has improved Not he's not just a goal scorer anymore he creates so many chances as he has done this season for Son at Tottenham and other players we've got players like Raheem Sterling um, Marcus Rashford Jadon Sancho Mason Greenwood who can be running at pace off him from wide areas into central positions if there's any problems for Southgate just calm down get yourself a plain piece of paper and a pen put Kane bang in the middle of the pitch and go right let's start from there and then work out your team from that because you, you, you at least won't go far wrong going forward you would hope the point Tom made about the, the one position that England have got so many options in is, is kind of wide forwards. So Harry Kane building a relationship with two of them and the way, you know, what we've seen in the early weeks of the season is him dropping deep and, and linking with Son so brilliantly. There's no reason why that can't work with, you know, England's intelligent wingers too. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing Harvey Barnes. I think, as I said a few weeks ago, I think he's got a huge future for England. I know that's a position that's going to be hard to dislodge players, but there are very few 
players in the Premier League that you know running with the ball at his feet are such a kind of thrilling sight because he's he's so powerful and he's running and I think he's improved greatly under Ben Rogers. So I think you probably get an opportunity. Um, you know, three games in seven days. It's a lot of games and. Um, and if one thing, England. Have, I was reading England of the thirty-man squad. I think fourteen of them, so nearly half, have won four or fewer caps. So this is a very inexperienced group of players, and you know, there's a lot of players who are kind of just making the step into the into the England squad, and they've got a point to prove. So, um, yeah, looking forward to seeing it. If you then drop back, though, into the midfield area, I think that's where, as much as we've talked a lot about the defence and the goalkeeper, that's where there's a bit of a conundrum, if you like, in that there is talent in there, but it's how Southgate chooses to play uh, in midfield and whether it's a defensive or attacking. And this is going to sound like I'm campaigning for Jose Mourinho to get the England job at some point, which I think would be great value and he'd actually be very good at it. <laughs> but if you look at Tottenham and how they started playing this season, they've got Kane in that central role. He's the creative force and he's scoring goals. And then they've got Son and either a Lamella figure alongside him. But then behind that, you've got three quite defensive minded midfielders. I think, you know, he started playing Ndombele, who I thought was a defensive midfielder by trade. And he's almost this kind of battering ram. Uh, attacking midfielder if you like and that is quite sensible because it allows the players in front of him to to shine with an element of solidity behind them and I've picked my England team on the game podcast before and ended up quite defensive with Jordan Henderson Harry Winks and defensive wing backs and three at the back but there is obviously the case for Jack Grealish and all these exciting players James Madison when he's fit to be playing in that attacking midfield role but I, I think it's a massive risk in terms of leaving England open. Alison, let me ask you, if you were Gareth Southgate, I mean, sorry, Gary Southgate, would you be calling your mate Jose? <laughs> um, would you be calling your mate Jose and asking him about the secrets of, of Tottenham's, you know, current positive form? Would you be calling Jurgen Klopp and trying to unleash the best of of the players in the Liverpool squad? You know, Vicente Del Bosque, one of the secrets to his success with Spain was just merging what worked well for the Barcelona players under Pep Guardiola with what was, at the time, not so successful for Real Madrid's players, but being able to merge the two. You know, should Gareth Southgate just be on the phone to Jurgen Klopp and trying to play like Liverpool? You know, make sure you can get the best out of Trent because his current system doesn't, for example. Um, you know, what would you do? Well, it... Never has it happened that the England manager gets on terribly well with any of the club managers. You, what you generally find is an England manager is happy if, uh, A, the club manager returns his calls, because they don't always. <laughs> B, they're honest about injuries and they have a dialogue about resting and making sure that both the club and country feel they're not the one losing out over time spent on the pitch by a certain player. So to expect three, for the, to expect that third element of the conversation to be about, can you help me out tactically, please? And who, who, do, you think, who do you think your player would play better alongside? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And really, you could probably say, it shouldn't happen because if you think it should happen, Hugh, there shouldn't be a thing as an international manager because all Gareth Southgate has to do all year is watch what Jurgen Klopp does and watch what Mourinho does and watch what Pep Guardiola does and watch those players and work out the best way to forge a team from that. And instead, I think I honestly think Gareth Southgate has spent far too long thinking about the personality, morality and relationship of his players rather than what they can actually do as footballers. 
I do like the idea, though, of him having the option of calling Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp or Jose Mourinho and saying Jose's the one in terms of how we want to play it going forward. I do, I do like that pragmatic element to be an England boss that we can't talk about England all day. But Scotland, Northern Ireland, the Republic, they're all in Euro 2020 playoff semis. By the time you hear this, they're probably all out. But Gregor, oh, I wanted me. to ask you. Excuse oh, me. Oh, goodness Greg, me. Gregor, what are your it, hopes? Take, <laughs> taken out Leeds fans. Now he's wiped out half of Great Britain as well. That. Oh, no. any, any, hopes for, any hopes for Scotland, Gregor? Uh, not not considering how many players are dropping out I mean obviously lost uh, three to to coronavirus uh, restrictions it seems and always we seem to have centre half dropping like flies and defenders so Scott McKenna who's just signed for Nottingham Forest good centre half he's pulled out Liam Palmer has pulled out from Sheffield Wednesday Oliver Burke's injured. I think James Forrest is injured. So that's, I think, including Ryan Christie, Tierney and Armstrong, who are ruled out through COVID. That's seven players at the last count who are out of the game. So, um, yeah, I'll be honest, my hopes aren't that high, but we'll see. <laughs> Let's not talk about Scott. I sound so There's depressed a- and I am because it's like... That is a sound of a resigned Scotsman right there. But it's a golden opportunity. We've done well to even have this opportunity and, and then this happens and it's like Steve Clark seemed like, you know, let's get him in. He's he done a marvellous job at, at Kilmarnock and I think he'd had a underrated kind of career as a manager too. And my God, he's just been dragged down by it all too. So it's just, uh, you know, you think England have what tough is driving Scottish. <laughs> on Monday we will be celebrating Scotland's 5-0 win over Israel stay tuned for that Tom Clark Gregor Robertson and Ali Rudd thank you for being with me this week you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times for more of the latest news from the footballing world search thetimes.co.uk slash the game and you can get one month free thanks for being with us we'll see you on Monday to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone